Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Welcome to the Freedom Hut team. Buck with you, uh, with you here now. Thank you so much for joining. Great to have you uh, uh, Great to have you with me. 844-900-BUCK. 844-900-2825. Uh, of course, we are going to get into some depth uh, with all of the latest stories going coming out of, of Houston. We're going to talk about what's going on uh, with the relief efforts there. I'll talk to you about ways that if you want to uh, donate, uh, get involved in whatever way you can, wherever you are across the country, uh, and have some expertise about what we can expect from the uh, emergency response and, and the various uh, local, state, and federal services and, and volunteers who are involved in trying to save lives and, and do everything possible to take care of the people uh, of Southeast Texas. And I know it's spreading beyond Texas as well. Uh, we'll have someone joining us from on the ground in the area to give us updates from there, too, and we'll get into that story in just a few moments. Also, a missile fired from North Korea, reported on by the Associated Press, could be another uh, another provocative test. We'll get into what that would what that means. We have uh, the Trump Ar- Arpaio uh, pardon from Friday. Uh, from Friday, uh, Sheriff Joe Arpaio was was pardoned by Donald Trump. We'll talk about that and the. Responses from all sides. And then also Dr. Sebastian Gorka resigned from his post as a senior White House advisor on Friday. Dr. Gorka will be joining us here on the show to tell us what went down. What was the story? Why is he leaving uh, his post close to Donald Trump in the White House? What's going on with the agenda? But I I wanted to turn our attention straight away here to what's been going on in the Texas with uh, uh, Hurricane Harvey, and we have at least a half dozen people confirmed to have been killed in the storm so far. Looks like many more um, as the waters recede. Uh, tragically, more bodies may well be found, but the waters are still rising in some areas. It is a disaster. Uh, Houston is America's fourth largest city. I think a lot of people forget that. It's the fourth largest city after New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles with 6 million people in the Houston uh, metro area. And you have in that area now three times more water has been dumped on Houston than occurred during Hurricane Katrina. Uh, this is enough water, in fact, to fill uh, Salt Lake, the Great Salt Lake from Salt Lake City, twice over is what I've read based on the uh, estimates of some engineers and specialists on this matter. So this is uh, a a terrible situation for the people of of Houston. And uh, you have uh, $9 trillion 
gallons of water. According to the Capital Weather blog, nine trillion gallons of rain have fallen in Southeast Texas alone. I find that just hard to believe that that's that that number is. But this is what I'm reading, and this is what I'm seeing. I mean, it's uh, it's enough to fill the entire Great Lake, as I told you twice, and it's just it's a massive amount of water. Uh, a massive amount of water has been dumped um, by uh, dumped on Houston. And the way that Houston is set up, they've been preparing for a while for flooding because flooding is nothing new to the Houston area. It's just not flooding of this level. Uh, they've set up drainage alongside many of the roadways. And in fact, the roads are among the first places to get flooded, which is why travel on the roads becomes so dangerous. And this then factors into decisions about uh, whether or not trying to escape the area once it because it wasn't known how bad it would be. People didn't have more than a a day or two of notice that it was going to be the storm that it turned out to be and that the water levels would rise uh, quite so high. Um, and this creates uh, innumerable hazards. Top of the list, of course, is drowning um, for people that may not be able to get out of the area. But the roads, the roadways have, have flooded. Uh, you are seeing photos that look like they are photoshopped, that look like they're fake. Uh, there's just no way that you would think water levels could rise quite so high. I mean, highway signs that you drive under that are almost submerged underwater. Um, there are time, there's time-lapse photography of areas of Houston that have gone from, well, a, an urban area of a major city to looks like a swamp. It's just completely underwater. Uh, so people are suffering. I mean, there's now been uh, many hours and for many thousands of rescues, people trying to get to those who are trapped, uh, trying to get to the elderly. Uh, there there are efforts underway to uh, bring in outsiders, including the, the Cajun Navy next door in Louisiana, to bring their boats to just try and rescue as many people as possible. Because, for example, you're surrounded by water, but potable water becomes a major concern. You can't drink the water that's around you, uh, and uh, water supplies get overrun by all this uh, runoff and by all of the, 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 flooded, the flood waters that have risen. And so it's difficult for people to get the proper hydration. Um, and then, of course, food is also a major problem. People with major medical issues. I was reading a story about a woman who uh, has... Uh, was having a baby and they tried to move her from one place to another and the car got stuck and they had to take her to a a Marriott hotel and they were going to have the baby there and then they're going to get her children's hospital and it's just it is uh, a, a nightmare for a lot of folks who are caught up in this it's a very dangerous and very even for those who aren't in the worst of it deeply unsettling situation and never mind the the damage bill here I mean, our, our first concern by a, a huge margin is just life and protecting the people that are caught up in this storm's path and, and in the pathway of these rising floodwaters. The flood is really the problem. It wasn't so much high winds or anything else. It was the floods and getting people to safety. And already you have crowding going on, overcrowding in some of the emergency shelters that have been set up. That's the biggest problem is, is getting people out of harm's way. But the damage toll here to property, I mean, you know, who knows? I mean, it'll be in the many, many billions of dollars. Uh, and it's just 
it's just, uh, you know, Mother Nature can be very cruel, and that's what's happening here. This is a storm um, similar to uh, others that we've seen that have caused a tremendous amount of damage. But for Houston, the, the because it's on a flat plain, really, it's a city that's uh, very close to sea level, and it's flat. Uh, drainage is a major issue. There's no... Uh, there's not a lot of, of high ground to get to, and uh, this is just one of those times when you wish that there was more that could be done. And we're going to be finding out in the uh, hours and days ahead you know, what the final damage looks like, and, and hopefully it recedes quickly. But uh, uh, thoughts and prayers to people of Houston. If you, have, if you are down in the area, by the way, and you can give us a sense of what you're seeing, uh, or you know people in the area you've been talking to, and you can fill us in on what they are seeing, uh, we'd really like to hear from you. 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. Uh, people are going to want to politicize this right away. I'm already seeing it. They're saying that the uh, Trump administration hasn't acted quickly enough. I, I think the Trump administration, from everything that I've read, is has said, whatever you need, uh, whatever we can do, we will do. Um, uh, here are, by the way, here are the... Uh, well, I'll, we'll get into it with you in just a moment, but there's just a, a lot that needs to be addressed here, and uh, a lot of a lot of people need help. Uh, a lot of people are going to need support, and uh, this is when we have, amidst all this destruction, chaos, and and despair, there there are opportunities here to show just how great the American people are, and we are coming together. There's that iconic photo of a. Just an American carrying a woman and her baby across the floodwaters. That's whatever to keep in mind here during all this. We're going to run into a uh, quick break. We'll get some on-the-ground sense of what's happening here and uh, some expert analysis on the federal response. Tell me, tell me about your day. Man, we came home yesterday. It wasn't rain. 45 minutes later, we in the flood. And we stayed on the first floor of the apartments. And water just started coming in, so we went to the second floor. And so how did they get you in that basket? We climbed out the windows with the sliding doors, and they just strapped us in. Okay, what's your name? Jeremiah. Jeremiah, what's your, how old's your son? He's sick, Jeremiah Jr. Yeah. We thank God. We thank God. And this is all you have? Yeah, this is all we got. We lost the car, all the clothes, school clothes, everything gone. Everything gone. Where do you go now? We don't know. We don't know. But you're thankful. Yeah. We thankful. God is. Jeremiah, thank you. God is. Jr., thank you. A man and his son caught up in these rising floodwaters telling the harrowing tale of how he escaped and despite losing all of his possessions to the flood, taking a moment to uh, be thankful that uh, his son and uh, and he were saved uh, and were able to escape and was thanking God for it. A lot of stories like that coming from Houston and uh, we want to know what's going on right now. To that end, We've got Brett Downer on the line. He is from News Radio 740 KTRH. He's a reporter who's live in Houston. Brett, thank you very much for joining us. Good evening. Uh, tell us what the latest is in the Houston area. What are you seeing, and how is the emergency response going? Well, would you have people working on their own, helping each other, along with emergency responders, because they need to get to a place like a shelter or somewhere away from town, but they have to move from floodwaters that have uh, risen on every single waterway in the Houston area, half of them at record levels. And is the water now already receding, or is there still continuous rain? And where else is it? What are the uh, responses, including the dams I'm seeing that's playing into this, too? 
That's right. The major uh, rivers in this area are still rising, will for another day, maybe two, and then they'll stay at uh, record levels for the rest of the week. So the rain is still falling. The rivers are still rising, and we're about halfway through, if that much, through this storm. Have you covered uh, previous storms like this in the Houston? I know there was one back in 2001, and I think there was one uh, in between this current storm and that one that were uh, pretty major hurricanes. But I'm told, or from what I'm reading, nothing has ever been like this in memory. No, and I can say that having covered uh, Hurricane Rita over in Louisiana, all along uh, the Gulf Coast over more years than I care to admit. This one, so unpredictable, uh, so much rain in, in unimaginable uh, quantities, and I hate to even use that adjective, but earlier today the National Weather Service used epic and catastrophic to describe the flooding, and they never put those two adjectives together before. Yeah, I would think that you could even say biblical proportions. I mean, that's what it certainly looks like in some of these photos that people are seeing. I mean, this is terrifying, uh, and, and I'm sure that this is something that now... Uh, is getting a lot of uh, folks, you know, or there are a lot of folks that are dealing with the immediate aftermath of having lost their home or having been put out in a circumstance where they they don't know what comes next. Uh, what are you seeing and hearing about the response, both from the uh, federal go- from the federal government side as well as uh, local police and law enforcement and and emergency responders? Think of it as a three-pointed response that's moving in. One is, of course, the federal uh, federal government. Uh, the early declaration, even before it happened, a preemptive declaration, which is sort of like uh, an aftermath of Katrina, the way things work now, helped. It meant that the National Guard, State Guard, and others can move in quickly because they were prepositioned. Better prepositioning, say, from Katrina of, of supplies and equipment, because that could be done that way. The other point uh, there on the, in these three points are people that simply help out neighbors or strangers by they get in boats and kayaks and even jet skis slowly to go through for people who have been flooded up to their doorway, in some cases even above their rooftops. And the third point is just the fact that there's been an awful lot of attention elsewhere where people roll in with linemen and crews and mutual services agreements to get power restored and to help go even home to home in some of the worst flooded areas. What are the expectations, and we're speaking to Brett Downer of News Radio 740 KTRH in Houston. Uh, Brett, what are the expectations for for when the worst of this will have passed? Uh, Maybe in about two days' time. Uh, Maybe today is, uh, what is it, Monday? The the days run together, actually, with continuous coverage. Thursday, the storm may move off uh, more to the east and out of the uh, the greater Houston area. From there, well, that's when the rain finally stops. That's the first chance, the first chance for these floodwaters to start to recede. Brett Downer of News Radio 740 KTRH, uh, live in Houston right now. Brett, we really appreciate you calling in to uh, bring us up to speed. Thank you, sir. Thank you. All right, we've got uh, Evelyn in North Carolina, WPTI. Hey, Evelyn. I just spoke about a half an hour ago with a friend of mine who lives in Houston. And it's horrific. He told me that the neighbors are all helping each other that they're, uh, some of them are out of power. She doesn't, you know, she didn't have her power. But the ones who don't, they're cooking up all the meat in their freezers because they think it's going to get ruined. And then they're knocking on doors asking people if they have food. It, oh, oh gosh. Getting to me. And then uh, they're helping each other. Then there was an old couple and the husband's handicapped, and 
the, the water is going into their living room, and they said, you know, we need help. Please help us. And they said, well, go up to the, uh, you know, the attic or the rooftop. She says, my husband's handicapped. We can't get up there. So uh, my son doesn't know what's happened in that situation. And then the, a man has had two snakes uh, swimming in his living room. There's crocodiles out. It's just a horrendous. And then she told me on Friday or Thursday, people were trying to stock up and you couldn't get bread anywhere. So she went and just bought crackers. Well, she was in uh, or heard that someone in Walmart was uh, stocking up with bread and they had a cart almost full of bread, and it was a riot. People were going there saying, you can't have all that bread. We need bread. So people were getting desperate. And um, it, it's just it's just horrific. And please, everybody, pray for these poor people. It's just they're, they're trying to help each other do the best that they can. And um, oh, just can't wait for this this whole situation to start to ease up so these people can, you know, start to live a a life again. I hear you, Evelyn. Thoughts and prayers. Thank you so much for uh, sharing those stories from your your friend who's right in the middle of this uh, so everyone knows just how how difficult and desperate the situation really is. Uh, Thank you, Evelyn. Um, There's there's, uh, photos out there. One of them went viral of uh, people in in a nursing home. You know, that's Someone's mom, someone's dad, people's brothers and sisters, uh, friends, loved ones who are above their waists in water from the flood in a nursing home because they needed. Now, they did get out. I read a follow up to the story. They were able to get out, but they had to sit in floodwaters for a while. And that must have been really uh, terrifying because you, you don't know if those uh, the, the flood is very unpredictable. You know, people think of this, at least my perception is that most people think of this as the water rises very, very gradually. But some things can change in a certain area, and all of a sudden the floodwaters can rise very quickly. That's why driving a vehicle is so dangerous, because you're driving along and you can think that your car can handle the water. But then with a, with a quick surge, all of a sudden you can get swept away um, in your vehicle. And uh, this is... You see the photos. I mean, you see the devastation. It is going to take quite some time. And I'm already reading that people are saying the, the reconstruction will take a year or two. So um, if you have uh, thoughts on this or you have a perspective you want to share on this, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. We have an expert in emergency management that's going to join us here in a minute. Uh, we are also then going to be switching topics and uh, talking a bit about Trump and the Arpaio pardon, which is getting a lot of attention, and uh, also North Korea's latest missile test reported by the Associated Press just as we came on air. And uh, we'll be talking about Dr. Gorka's departure from the White House and Antifa in Berkeley and the violence there from a Uh, a small riot against free speech. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Towards I-45, all the way through Houston, and this is just, again, that first initial band, but it's digging into the Gulf of Mexico and pulling up so much Gulf moisture. So 
when I opened the door, more water rushed in. And all of my stuff flew out. And, like, it just kept coming in. So I shut the door back, and I, I was like, I got to get out. We were popping, like, coming out of a tornado. Periods and waves of very heavy rain. The chance for an isolated brief tornado, some straight line winds. 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock last night, everything was cool. And then the heavens opened up, we're getting five inches of rain an hour. I'm just trying to get some food. This is the freeway, this is 288, almost 16 foot. My car is flooded. My car is flooded. Yes. And the highway flooding anyway, I can't be driving. It's pretty bad right there. We need some chainsaws and some axes so we can get people out of their houses. Our crews have evacuated the building along Allen Parkway. Two feet of water in the station. And they are evacuating the building right now. Those are the kind of circumstances we're dealing with. Our lights went out. A bunch of trees just started breaking off my yard. And generators from my neighbor's house just blew up. Everything from helicopters to boats to flatbed trucks have been deployed to deliver victims to higher ground. We actually uh, geared up and headed out there early this morning, but because of all those downed power lines and complete darkness, we weren't able to get out there and establish a signal. We just praised God and, he, you know, we were rescued, so we're very thankful. All right, so there's a tremendous devastation down in the Texas area, in southeast Texas, Houston, and it's spreading beyond there, too. We are by no means out of the woods. In fact, the recovery efforts are in full swing, and there could be a lot more coming that we have to keep an eye on here. Uh, We're joined now by Dr. Tim Frazier. He is the faculty director of the Emergency and Disaster Management Program at Georgetown University. He's a coastal hazards and risk assessment expert whose research has been funded by NOAA and FEMA. And we're going to talk to him now about what's going on at Harvey. Dr. Frazier, thank you so much. My pleasure. Uh, Dr. Frazier, first, what are, for these recovery efforts, uh, what are the imminent concerns and what are the ways that they can be addressed? What are some of the challenges and the solutions here? Well, I think the primary sort of uh, response orientation here is for prevention of loss of life. I mean, we're still in the prevention of loss of life stage of response effort, and then we can shift into recovery after that, but primarily we're 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 fighting hard to uh, prevent loss of life. Now, what is that? What are the the the, the primary concern is uh, is drowning, but also in some of these areas, I assume there are uh, power lines become a concern. Electrocution. I mean, what are the what are the risks? What are the things that people have to be aware of in a flood scenario, disaster area like this? Yeah, the primary concern is, is drowning, and uh, what typically happens is people. Uh, don't respect the, the level of the water, and they try to drive through the water, uh, which most, most loss of life from drowning comes from that. But in this case, we have a situation where people potentially are trapped in their homes uh, and not out on the road in their vehicles. But both situations are, are pretty dr- uh, drastic, tremendous sort of negative opportunities for a loss of life consequence. Uh, cascading events like power lines being down, and then we have to look sort of into the future at uh, the public health risk that comes from uh, water contamination, waterborne uh, disease or illness that might spread as a result of some of these uh, flooded areas. I mean, I'm assuming that the water that people are being subjected to here uh, in some places would be full of all kinds of, of pathogens and things that you don't want to be exposed to. Yeah, a lot of nasty stuff floating around. Uh, you know, typically whenever there's 
there's a really hard rain in an urban area, the runoff from that from that precipitation is full of uh, all sorts of chemicals, all sorts of pathogens, things like that that are, are pretty nasty on a, on a sort of daily perspective with precipitation. And that sort of serves to flush out contaminants in cities through the stormwater system out to out to rivers uh, and to the ocean, the Gulf in this case. Uh, but here we got a lot of water floating around. It's going to be uh, there for a while. And then there's also uh, the threat of, um, uh, you know, reptiles uh, and other sorts of things like that that contribute to some of the risks and some of the challenges there. Dr. Frazier, in terms of the preparations that were made or could have been made by the city of Houston, I know that people have already been criticizing the uh, the mayor's response there regarding the evacuation order. Uh, this is your area of expertise. I mean, you are somebody who studies emergency and disaster management. You teach uh, on this issue. What what can you tell us so far about how you would assess Houston's preparation level in terms of the actual infrastructure for this kind of an incident, as well as the response from those in charge of utilizing that infrastructure? Well, that's a, that's a sort of a complex question with a complex response. Uh, you know, it's easy to sort of point the finger at emergency management in terms of they didn't do this or they didn't do that. They didn't respond adequately in terms of they didn't have enough boats or they didn't have enough sort of we didn't do evacuation. But if, if you think about sort of the, the, whole, the whole phenomenon of evacuation, you're talking about moving six and a half million people in a very short window of time. And that's just an impossible situation to do. There's not there's not anywhere near enough infrastructure in place there or road network capacity to move that high volume of people, even if you had the resources from an economic perspective to move those folks and to move them into another environment. So that's just an impossible situation. I think what we have to start to look at is we have to start to look at things like how we do planning and development in, in our country and how we put folks in, in harm's way by allowing a development to occur relatively unchecked uh, from the response of from the perspective of economics and economic development and some of the contestation or challenges that emergency management then has to face in order to solve those issues, those problems. So so if I was given a grade, uh, the, best, the highest grade I could give here would be an A- minus to emergency management because no one gets an A when there's loss of life involved. And that's a primary sort of objective for emergency management is to prevent loss of life. And unfortunately, uh, they weren't 100% successful there. They're doing a reasonably good job, though, in an incredibly different difficult situation, particularly when you when you understand that the shared definition of a disaster is a, an event that overwhelms the capacity to deal with that. And so definitely uh, a, a catastrophic situation uh, on, the, on the surface, though, there appears to be a reasonably good job being done by emergency management there. But uh, we'll, we'll be unfolding and unpacking that, uh, their performance and what Houston has done in this. Uh, for years to come. We're speaking to Dr. Tim Frazier. He's faculty faculty director of the Emergency and Disaster Management Program at Georgetown University. Uh, Dr. Frazier, the declaration of this as a federal emergency, the uh, the response from the federal government, how how much does that help, and what kind of help do they provide? Well, you know, quite honestly, most of the federal government's primary responsibility is just resources and marshaling resources in terms of money. A lot of the recovery efforts are handled locally. And so certainly from the, the perspective of the local government, in order to handle recovery uh, when, when, it's over, when it's overwhelming in this case, uh, money or resources from the federal government are, are great. Uh, but then there's also the support that, that typically comes from 
neighboring communities and neighboring states, and that's that's uh, in terms of human capital. Uh, and that's that's highly valuable as well. So I've seen a lot of reporting already, Dr. Frazier, on uh, the, the Cajun Navy, uh, which is a, a more organized effort. But just everyone who can and and is, and is able getting there to try and pluck people out of the water or pull them out of their homes as the as the waters are rising by using whatever craft are available. Authorities are very uh, thankful for those efforts. Right. I mean, c- civilians that are getting in their boats and stuff is also a key part of this. Uh, they are, but it's a mixed bag. And, and if you remember from the flooding we had in, in Baton Rouge uh, uh, previous to this, uh, the Cajun Navy always is very good to respond. So very sort of volunteerism is really strong in, in that part of the country. And, and people in the U.S. tend to do a really nice job responding to uh, natural hazards and disasters from a volunteer perspective. But there's also the complication of having people in the community that are that are eager and willing to help uh, and, and how that also com- complicates emergency disaster management's job to make sure that the people that are there to help are actually helping in ways that are actually helpful, if you, if you don't mind me saying it from that perspective. All right. Dr. Tim Frazier of Georgetown University's Emergency and Disaster Management Program, we appreciate you joining to lend your expertise, sir. Thank you, sir. For everybody listening, if you want to help in some way, uh, iHeartRadio is teaming up with the Red Cross to help in Texas, to help our brothers and sisters in Texas here after this devastating flood, you can go uh, to redcross.org or give $10 by texting Harvey, H-A-R-V-E-Y, Harvey, to 90999. That's redcross.org to give, or you can give $10 by texting Harvey to 90999. And uh, everything you can do to help is, of course, uh, needed and appreciated. The leaders of the coast of the great state of Texas responded to this horrific hurricane is immeasurable, courageous, and heroic. Governor Abbott of uh, Texas on the response here from uh, emergency personnel, uh, law enforcement, other first responders out there, and also civilians who have thrown themselves into this effort to save Houstonians and everyone in Texas affected by uh, this terrible flooding. Uh, Let's take some calls here. Lines are lit here in the Freedom Hunt. I know a lot of you have much to say, many thoughts on this. Ashley in Louisiana on the iHeart app. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Buck. Shields high. Shields high. I think, thanks. I think you're great. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to add, and it's not a new perspective at all, but we're here um, only a few hours away from Louisiana, and as soon as the call was put out for boats, my husband and brother-in-law are down there with their boats with the Harris County Fire Department. Now, we are white, conservative Trump voters, so by definition, we should be bigots and hateful people, which in reality, obviously not, but I just hope that a tragic situation like this will just magnify for all of us the humanity that we really have between each other, that once the media and all their toxic propaganda is removed, there is still love and humankind between all of us. Absolutely. Well, first of all, tell your husband, thanks from all of us listening here, that he's down there trying to help out the folks in Texas. You you said you're nearby in Louisiana, right? Or Louisiana? Yes, sir. 
Yeah, yeah, no, Louisiana, exactly. I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm trying to work on my pronunciation a little bit. I get this is a national show, and anytime I, I've gotten rid of Oregon, I now say Oregon, so I'm getting better. My, and my, my Louisville apparently is and, not uh, bad, but Louisiana is a little, little beyond me right now. But I'm working on it. But anyway, Louisiana, the easiest way to say anything is the right way to say it. All right, I all like right. it. Well, look, uh, Ashley, thank you so much to your husband. Thank him for from all of us for yeah. what he's doing. Um, God bless him and you for uh, for all all your efforts down there, and and keep us surprise let us know how it goes yes thank you buck so much for what you do thank you so much appreciate it uh let's take sue in north carolina on wpti hey sue yes hello hello hi it's very nice talking to you you too um with all this concern and all this um disruption and 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 terrible devastation that happened with this hurricane um my main concern is do, do you think anyone is considering maybe building a flood wall for these sea-level states, including Louisiana? I don't know. I mean, that's a question, I think, for the Army Corps of Engineers. I'm, I'm not... Uh... I'm not expert, and to say I'm not expert enough is an overstatement. I mean, I'm a, or an understatement. I'm not somebody who understands much about how to protect uh, states or localities from rising floodwaters. I, I don't know if a flood wall would be effective here or not. Something I could certainly look into and do some research on. Uh, my understanding of how Houston functions is that the roadways are, in fact, the uh, the the first place to get flooded and, and by design in some ways because that's where they also have drainage. They built drainage alongside the roads in a lot of places. So the, the roads are the first places that will get flooded, the idea being it will draw water away from homes and, and inhabited areas. Uh, but I don't know if a flood wall would have done much here because uh, is this most – I mean, the, it sounds to me, and I don't know, but it sounds to me like the water's coming from the sky mostly. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. I was just thinking along the lines of – with all these glo- global warming concerns and the oil disruptions, um, loss of life, the uh, the economic devastation. Um, I know in the Netherlands, if they didn't have a flood wall, a floodgate, um, they they would not be able to exist as a country. Yeah, there may be some new there may be some new uh, things that need to be considered here. What? Yeah, I mean, so there's, uh, but a, a flood wall, I think, is has to do with sea level rise. So I think that's a, a different problem. So, Sue, thank you for for calling in. Um, in Houston, I, I also think I think Houston's they call it the city of bayous uh, because there's all these bayous that it's actually riverways that the the, the water because there's there's no real drainage and so. Uh, Houston is a city of bayous, which I think for people next door in Louisiana, there's a lot of sense that when people think of a bayou, they think of Louisiana, but it's actually Houston or uh, Houston's a city of bayous. So uh, I'm, I'm learning more as I can here about how all this how all this works and, and how it functions. Um, but I don't know if there was much that could have been done here. I think this is just this, you know, the natural disasters happen um, and you can prepare for them as best you can. I don't know if this could have been really in any way averted or. Uh, I think that they're handling it as best they can under the circumstances. Lisa in Georgia on WMCD. Hey, Lisa. Hey. Hey. I'm sorry. I'm biting my phone. <laughs> Just a second. Let me take you off the speaker so I can hear you. There, that would be better because everyone's listening, too. So there you go. Lisa, do we, do we have you? Oh, she cut out. She meant to hit the speaker, I think, and instead she just... She just uh, cut cut comms. All right. Well, I'm sure she had some very insightful things to say. We're sorry we lost you there, Lisa. Uh, Maggie, Mississippi, WBUV. Hey. 
Hey, Buck. How are you doing today? I'm all right, thank you. How about you? I'm doing all right. Well, a um, couple things. One, pray for Texas. Um, I've got family that lives in Kingsville. I've got other friends that live in... Um, I've got a friend that lives an hour away from Houston. So um praying for my friends and my family out that way. Absolutely. Um, and uh, another thing, a couple other things. Louisiana does have a, uh, a well, New Orleans at least does, ha- has a system to avoid flooding. But for some reason, um, the last flood it had, uh, the, 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 the drainage system wasn't working properly. Just a couple weeks ago, it's it's drainage or it's um it's flood floodgate a flood uh um I don't I can't remember what they call it uh, reduction it, I don't know yeah whatever it is half half of half of their system was down um but anyway they have a levee system in New Orleans they're they're a bowl they're a bowl and um the the thing that caused them to flood during Katrina was the levees broke. Right. And um, I think in this case, the bayous in Houston have overflowed, basically. I think yes. that's what's happened. Yes. yes, and they have something similar to what Louisiana has. Yeah, so, I mean, they had systems in um, place, but they, the system got overwhelmed. I mean, there's only so much I think they'll... Another, another comment I have is, don't forget, when you mention Katrina, don't forget to mention Mississippi. I live five blocks inland. My house got six inches of water inside of it. No, I, I know these storms can hit a, a huge area. I mean, you know, Mississippi, Katrina, Alabama. I mean, Katrina, Katrina stretched from Louisiana all the way to Pensacola, Florida. Are, are you guys? Is Mississippi right now getting hit by some of this storm? Yes, sir. It is. I'm I'm dealing with rain bands right now outside. I figure it would. All right. Well, you stay safe, Maggie. Thanks for calling in from Mississippi. Appreciate hearing from you, team. We're going to talk about Trump and Arpaio and the pardon. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Team Buck, thanks for hanging out with me. Buck Sexton, back with you now. And uh, on on Friday, I was at uh, dinner. I was at a dinner for Miss Molly, my uh, girlfriend, her mother. It was her birthday. So I was at a dinner. And uh, sure enough, I'm seeing on my phone all the stuff about the Arpaio pardon. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm just going to have to address this on Monday. I, well, I see what the big deal is here, but I depart from some of my conservative colleagues on why they think this is such a a terrible decision. Let's first just dispense with any uh, legal outrage over this. The president is absolutely allowed to do this, 100% within his rights as the president of the United States to do this. There's no person with a law degree or even with access to Google and a baseline of curiosity argues the president does not have a right to do this. The president has a right to do this. And he did. The president can pardon somebody under these circumstances, and that is a presidential power. You know, the same way the president signs a, signs a bill to make it a law, and that's the president's right, and the president can veto, and that's a presidential power. The pardon power, which is a uh, an, an off, uh, well, awesome power, in the sense of inspiring awe, it is a it is an incredibly potent tool that we give to the president of the United States, and it has been, as we will get into this in a few moments, incredibly abused by recent Democrat presidents. But once again, they're right; they're right to do it. 
and their right for the American or, or and the right of the American people to judge them for the pardons that they give. Yeah, and the, the previous president extended the power of the pardon to just be uh, essentially a way of rewriting law, right? So it wasn't just, I'm pardoning this individual and that individual. It's, well, I'm going to suspend this law. Anyone convicted in this law or in this way, we're going to say, no longer is um, going to be held guilty or no longer is going to be considered a criminal. Uh, but I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. First, Trump came under fire for this on uh, Friday. Well, because of the timing of it, while it's it's happening during the hurricane. I, I thought he was going to do it during that rally in Phoenix earlier in the week, and he didn't, obviously. And now everyone's so focused on the timing of this. I, I don't have a whole lot of uh, concern or care for when Trump chooses to do this, just because he'd get a lot of criticism. It's not like if he waited and or he did it sooner that there wouldn't be this. Oh, you'd hear all the same criticisms of it. So I don't know how much it really changes the game to have the president doing this on Friday. And uh, people are saying it was a Friday dump. Okay, well, maybe, but he wanted to do it and he did it. He didn't have to do it. If, if it was, if he was so worried about the optics of it, he wouldn't have done it at all. So I, it doesn't. To me, the, the timing doesn't matter all that much. I don't see it as a major point of contention, and that's what came up today during the press conference that uh, Trump had. People were asking him. First of all, he he fully he says he fully stands by this, but this was just before we came on air press conference. Trump says he stands by it. So. Joe was very unfairly treated by the Obama administration, especially right before an election, an election that he would have won. So and he was elected many times. So um, I stand by my pardon of Sheriff Joe. What he's saying here is that the Obama administration chose to file criminal charges, criminal contempt charges or bring a criminal contempt case using the Department of Justice uh, against Sheriff Joe. Right before his election, he lost that election, the election for sheriff. Uh, he's been in law enforcement for uh, many decades. I, I don't even know. Let me see if I can find the full count here. He was first elected sheriff in Maricopa County in 1992. So he's been doing this job for a very long time. And he has uh, over 50 years of law enforcement experience in total. Now, I know that some of the things that he has he's done in the past, uh, people felt like was, you know, showboating. He was it bothered people. It looked like it was more for political public political consumption than it was about law enforcement. And, um, you know, I, I wouldn't have made some of the choices that the sheriff made. But then again, I'm not in law enforcement and I honestly couldn't really do law enforcement. Uh, it, it's just not my. Not my thing. Um, I think I'm I'm too much of a softy. I'd probably want to let too many people off with a warning. So I I respect those who are able to draw the hard line and and enforce the law. Uh, but Sheriff Joe here was targeted by the Obama administration with criminal contempt. Now he could have gotten six months in prison for this. And I see from National Review that some of my my friends over there. Uh, the editorial board took real issue with this. Now, again, they know that he can, what Trump did is something Trump can do. They just disagree with it. They think that it sets a bad precedent. It sets a bad example. Uh, one of the one of the objections that I see to the sheriff Joe pardon is that 
they should have, or Trump should have let the process play out more. Well, the process is the punishment. This guy has to show up in court and he's facing criminal uh, penalties here, including up to six months in prison. Well, what if he had gotten, I don't think he would have gotten six months, but what if he had gotten, you know, 90 days in prison for this? And you're asking for what, probably? Uh, for having his law enforcement officers try and enforce the law as they saw it, which included determining the immigration status of an individual, which is it's complicated, but the, the short version of this is that in Arizona, the Obama administration at the federal level more or less stepped in and said they didn't want local authorities helping them enforce federal immigration law because the Democratic Party is complicit in violation of immigration law. Democratic Party is helping illegal aliens break the law in this country. It benefits them It benefits them to do so. They want it to happen. They encourage it to happen. They defend sanctuary policies. They are promoting lawlessness because it gives the Democrats raw political power. That's it. We can sit around and talk about how all the Democrats are all about just being in touch with people and we're a nation of immigrants. And No, no, no. Trust me. Nancy Pelosi doesn't care about poor people, period. And she doesn't care about poor people who are immigrants unless she thinks they're going to vote for the Democratic Party. Trust me on this one. So all of the grandstanding from the Obama administration in the past on this was just electoral politics through the prism of, don't worry, the federal government's going to enforce immigration law. We don't want state authorities. So we don't want local government getting involved here. This is the federal government saying, hey, if you have somebody who's violated federal immigration law, or if you, if you want to find that out, don't, because we don't need the help. Really? Federal government doesn't need the help when it comes to enforcing the border, forcing immigration law? Who believes that? What, what's the problem here? Why can't they assist in immigration law? Now, this went to court, and, and, the, uh, and, and you know, Arizona, there was the law. What is it? Uh, I think it was, I, I forget the, the designation for the law. I'll look it up in a second. Um, is it, uh, law in Arizona having to do with enforcing immigration, you know, trying to get more aggressive on this. And the contempt charge against Sheriff Joe Arpa- Ar- Arpaio had to do with stopping people with these stops where they would try to ascertain immigration status. And they're saying that he was profiling, that he was racially discriminatory in these. Well, profiling is interesting because when you're near the U.S.-Mexico border, you are going to have a, a, a preponderance of illegal immigration cases that involve Mexico and Central America. We, we can pretend like that's not the case, but it's obviously the case. So the profiling issue becomes very complicated very quickly. Are you profiling or are you just coming across a disparity that exists because of geography, not because of bigotry? But there was some degree... All sides who are trying to be fair here in the Sheriff Joe case, there was some degree of complexity as to whether he was complying with this court order to not engage in profiling or not engage in discriminatory law enforcement practices. And there, and the judge that brought the contempt trial, and I believe he was denied his right to a jury trial here, so a judge just got to pass judgment on him. Not really sure that's the way it's supposed to work out, everyone. Pretty sure the whole jury trial thing for criminal charges is supposed to be your right as a as a U.S. citizen, as an American. Um, but, yeah, he was denied that. He was a judge, I, th- I think, and I should check on this, too. A judge just looked this. A judge just was able to uh, do a bench trial for him. 
So, and, you know, found him guilty here of contempt. And here we are. Now we're being told that what Trump did was so bad. Okay, so on the timing issue, there's there's a timing issue and a propriety issue here. Here's what Trump said about the timing of it. Well, a lot of people think it was the right thing to do, John. And actually, uh, in the middle of a hurricane, even though it was a Friday evening, I assume the ratings would be far higher than they would be normally. You know, the hurricane was just starting. Uh, And I put it out that I had pardoned, uh, as we call, as we say, Sheriff Joe. He's done a great job for the people of Arizona. He's very strong on borders, very strong on illegal immigration. He is loved in Arizona. I thought he was treated unbelievably unfairly when they came down with their big decision to go get him right before the election voting started, as you know. And he lost in a fairly close election. He would have won the election, but they just hammered him. He's saying that if he wanted to hide this, he wouldn't do it during the hurricane coverage because so many more people are paying attention to the news. I mean, you know, I guess you can say that it over it clearly overshadows it. And so it's a way of he did it on a Friday. But I, again, I don't really he didn't have to do this. So he's choosing to do it and that he's choosing to do it in this manner doesn't really change. I think the discussion about whether or not um, it was. Remember, it's not whether it was legal. It's definitely legal, 100%. Is it wise? Is it just? Does it set a good precedent? Uh, The other criticism that this is somehow a... uh, This is... Well, what I mean, the the criticism that the timing is bad, I don't really buy it. Oh, that that the system should be allowed to play out. Well, that just means you're going to let him... going to let him suffer more. And if you're going to pardon a guy, why not just pardon him right away? Um, Because I think he was awaiting sentencing still. And he had appeals. People are saying, oh, he had appeals. Oh, you're going to make somebody go through appeals. So you can pardon them after all that? The process is the punishment. So I don't like that. I don't like that line of argument at all. Oh, yeah. He should have exhausted all his appeals and then get pardoned. Hmm? Why? Um, And then we get into the politics of this, which, which is where this gets thick, where this really all comes together. Uh, which is it's all about what do you what do you think about Arpaio and and trying to enforce immigration? That really determines, for the most part, overwhelmingly, whether you like Trump's part of him or not. And can the president or should the president, the president can, Ken's not the right word, should the president take it upon himself or herself in the future to grant a pardon, to use this executive power because of Making a political point, the desire to show that one side is uh, getting, in this case, persecuted for trying to enforce the law, or uh, th- this is clearly a political decision, or ha- or has political ramifications. And how does that affect all of this? Um, well, we know the Democrats do this. Now, people will say, "Oh, well, look at what you know Barack Obama did with Chelsea Manning, uh, pardoned him." I'm sorry, commuted him. Important distinction, commutation just means a lesser lesser punishment. In that case, let Chelsea Manning out of prison. Uh, pardon is like it never happened, right? It's like you were never convicted, and, you, and whatever penalty you had set up, you're not going to serve. And it vacates the conviction if you're there. So pardon is like the president just wipes it away, clean slate for you. And as Trump was quick to point out, the Democrats have used this in the past for, it's really been for sale with Democrats. 
So you have the Mark Rich pardon, infamous pardon, where, uh, by the way, Attorney General Eric Holder signed off on that when he was a senior U.S. attorney uh, under the Clinton administration. He, he And he was directly involved with that whole process. So, yeah, that so under Clinton, he's part of the Mark Rich pardon fiasco. And then later on, Obama makes him attorney general. He gets rewarded for it. Mark Rich's wife was a big dollar Democrat donor. Mark, Mark Rich defrauded people, stole their money, fl- uh, fled to uh, Switzerland, never faced the justice system, never served a day in prison, day in jail, nothing. And President Clinton just wiped the whole thing away. I mean, Trump pointed out who some of the past pardons have been. President Clinton pardoned Mark Rich, who was charged with crimes going back decades, including illegally buying oil from Iran while it held 53 American hostages, wasn't allowed to do that, selling to the enemies of the United States. He was pardoned after his wife donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to the Clintons. You have dangerous criminals. President Clinton pardoned Susan Rosenberg, a member of the weathered underground Charged as part of a bank robbery that led to a guard and two police officers being killed. Drug dealers. President Clinton commuted the sentence of Carlos Vignali, a central player in a cocaine ring that stretched from California to Minnesota. Criminal leaker. President Obama commuted the sentence of Chelsea Manning. Now, what you're seeing here is Trump laying out that the other side, the Democrats, Clinton, Obama, have pardoned people for all, all kinds of reasons. And they were making a political point, or they were just engaged in dirty politics. But oftentimes that is, you're making a judgment call about a pardon. It's going to feel, it's going to look political. And if you want to make the point that someone should not be serving prison time for enforcing immigration law, perhaps overzealously, perhaps not, but that's the president's prerogative. So I, I I don't understand why there's such an outreach from the right. I mean, the Democrats are, of course, going to hate it. But why do conservatives hate it? I love that president. Uh, he supports law enforcement. And I'm very humble. And I said publicly recently, pardon or no pardon, I will be with him to the end. And I'm going to have a news conference early next week and get to the bottom of this and show the abuse of the judicial system in politics. I'm not going down without trying to defend myself. There we have uh, Sheriff Joe Arpaio, I believe on uh, Sean Hannity's program, talking about how he's going to stay with President Trump and he supports him and whether there's a pardon or not. And now we know that Arpaio has been pardoned. In fact, I mentioned a law, an Arizona law. It's SB 1070. And it uh, went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And there was one part of it that was upheld which is that uh, Arizona state police are allowed to investigate the immigration status of an individual stopped, detained, or arrested if there is a, quote, reasonable suspicion that the individual is in the country illegally. Uh, So there are some other parts of this that other parts of SB 1070 that were struck down by the Supreme Court. Uh, You had Justice Kagan recuse herself and... You had a uh, majority opinion with Kennedy, Roberts, Ginsburg, Breyer, and Sotomayor. Uh, so, yes. And Scalia, Thomas, and Alito concurred in part and dissented in part. So, 
this law made it all the way to the Supreme Court, and they were saying that you can't have different states in, in enforcing different immigration laws. It's only up to the federal government. Isn't that interesting? But you can have different states that re- refuse to enforce federal uh, federal immigration law. You can have sanctuary jurisdictions, but you can't have places that are trying to help. So you have places that refuse to help, and Democrats will defend that, and you have places that aren't allowed to help. So only the federal government can do anything on immigration law, as well. even though there's a, a federal law in the books right now that says that you have you can ascertain the or you can uh, request local law enforcement, demand local law enforcement, pass along the immigration status of somebody in custody. Uh, Michelle in North Dakota, we got about a minute, but I want to get you in. What's up? Hi there. Yeah, I have I have a word or two to say, like I told your lady who answered the phone. I'm a serious victim of illegal immigration marriage fraud. I was never intended to know the things that I know. I had to hire uh, private investigators, and then when I could no longer afford that, had to become my own investigator and continued. And I know things that general people absolutely do not know. This has been going on for greater than 50 years just within my husband's family alone. He's got grandparents who've duped people like me. They don't put up a PSA for us people, not at all. We don't know that it's immigration law, that they need to stay married greater than four years and that they need to birth one child, preferably two. Nobody knows that. There are no PSAs and there is no help for people like us. None at all. And therein lies the huge problem, just exactly what you're talking about. The fact of the matter is, is there are people that truly believe it's not illegal. You are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. Report North North Korea launches missile over northern Japan. Here are some of the details from The Independent in the U.K., North Korea has test-fired a missile over Japan in an unprecedented act that is likely to further inflame tensions in the region. Japan's government has confirmed it is the latest act of provocation by the communist state since it fired missiles into the Sea of Japan three days ago following comments from President Donald Trump that he would meet any threats from North Korea with fire and fury. If initial reports prove correct and a long-range missile has been flown over the Japanese mainland, this will be regarded as a far more provocative act than flying shorter-range weapons into the sea. So you've heard of a shot across the bow before. I mean, this is a missile across the mainland, uh, assuming this is true. This is a big deal. Um, Think about how we would react. I mean, I know that this is far away. It is a major country and a major U.S. ally in Japan. But imagine for a moment if a crazy uh, nuclear autocracy, uh, tyranny like North Korea fired any kind of missile over, let's just say Hawaii for a second. And just, you know, the people of Hawaii could see the missile streak. Well, I I don't know how fast these things go, but, you know, missile streaks across the air, lands in the sea after crossing Hawaiian airspace. We would have something to say about that. That would put people on edge for very understandable reasons. And uh, Japan has to be looking at what's going on right now in North Korea and wondering, when when does it cross from provocation into outright hostility and uh, 
and an act of not just intimidation, but an act of war. These are not clearly defined lines. Uh, These are politically malleable lines, meaning that the political sentiment of the moment can determine, and the political leadership certainly, can determine what the response and the reaction is to incidents like this. Now, the Trump administration has raised North Korea as a problem that requires an immediate and and imminent response. Uh, I think it is fair to look at what was done for eight years of the Obama administration and say not nearly enough was done. And the doctrine, uh, you can't make this up or you don't have to make it up because it's there for you. In Libya, which was a an intervention that led to a failed state and a jihadist, at least for, for a while, a jihadist takeover and an Islamic state enclave on the coast of Libya. The phrase that we all remember, the, the strategic overview of Libya was leading from behind under the Obama administration. And with North Korea, it is or was strategic patience. Uh, I was once told by a very wise man that strategy or strategic is kind of like hummus. You just add it to things to make it taste better than it otherwise would be, but it's not really all that meaningful. Um, And so patience in this case for the Obama administration was just a fancy way of saying inaction and strategic was, I know for a lot of you, you're like hummus buck, bad choice. How about peanut butter or Nutella or something? Okay, fine. But same idea. You just add it to it and it tastes better. Strategic, that's the case. A lot of times, senior, you you can turn on the TV as oh, the, the senior White House reporter, as opposed to just the White House reporter, the senior analyst for whatever. Oh, as opposed to just the analyst. Um, you know, senior is a title that could also get much abuse. Depends on the circumstances, but it can also be something that doesn't really have all that much meaning. But strategic, def- and all, and sometimes tactical too. I mean, I get people like, oh, you know, I'm gonna, I've got a, I've got a tactical mug. Why is it? Is it like better at uh, at evading the enemy than a normal mug? I mean, it, it maybe if it's camouflage, I guess, but I don't know how a mug would necessarily be tactical. You see what I'm saying? But strategic patience was just a fancy way of saying not doing very much at all and allowing the problem to fester and get worse. And that's what happened in, in North Korea. And I think that there's now a much greater uh, focus from the public on understanding what North Korean intentions may be. And to do that, you have to understand North Korean ideology and the situation of the North Korean state. I think very few Americans know, for example, or very few Americans have been told that North Korea views the 1954 uh, cessation of hostilities after the Korean War as being a... In North Korea, the uh, cessation of hostilities is viewed as... is is talked about... As, I'm sorry, 1953, pardon me, um, is talked about as a surrender by the United States. A surrender. It is talked about as a giant victory for the Kim regime. So when we think about how North Koreans and particularly the military apparatus thinks of its current position, we have to keep in mind that they think that they beat us in 19, well, from 1950 to 1953 in the Korean War. They very much downplay the assistance of the Chinese in that. 
This is now North Korea, North Korean media, the official narrative inside the country, which is different from the narrative outside the country, of course. In fact, South Korea also somewhat downplays the U.S. role in their liberation from North Korea, but that's perhaps another discussion. Uh, and we know that there are some elements in South Korea that very much want the that view the U.S. presence there as the problem, want the U.S. to leave, and there are noisy protests about this sometimes. But the North Koreans believe that they beat us in 1953, and that since then, we talk about using the international community to uh, punish North Korea, to cut them off from the world. Uh, meanwhile, they view, particularly over the nuclear negotiations, they view it as the U.S. and the rest of the world paying tribute to them. And when you think about it, yeah, we do show up with food. We do show up with stuff for them. In fact, there are. it became acceptable for a while to carry around United Nations aid bags, the actual bags that the aid came in. You think, well, how, how could a country like that allow, how could the, the official, uh, you know, state media, how could the official state policy allow U.N. food bags to be carried around for other things, right? To sort of reuse, reuse these bags, because doesn't it show that there are dependency of, the, you know, the international community? Uh, no, because the mentality is that the U.N. brings them stuff because the U.N. is, in a sense, paying tribute, right? The, the, the U.N. is bowing to the Kim regime. Yeah. Start to think about it in those terms. And, uh, and also, remember, the U.N. plays a very much larger role in, this, in Korean sense of history because the Korean War was a U.N. mission. We, we don't, now we usually think about the U.N. and bureaucrats and not doing a lot and standing on the sidelines during genocide when they're supposed to be intervening. In, 19, in the, 1950, uh, the 1950 war, or the war that started in 1950, was, it was a U.N.-based war, a U.N. mission, with the United States leading it as the principal force. Came to the aid of South Korea. It was a U.N. intervention. So there's an entirely different narrative of history from inside of North Korea that affects the way they see their future. And they're aware now of South Korea's much greater material prosperity. But North Koreans believe that they are a virtuous people that are beset by evil Americans and everyone else. Puppet regime in South Korea and all that it takes is military reunification of the Korean Peninsula, and then Koreans will reach their true greatness. So the whole state is geared towards this. They're not saying they're going to make people prosperous and rich and happy in North Korea. They're saying they're going to unify the Korean Peninsula. This is North Korean, not just propaganda. This is like the mission statement of the Kim regime. They will unify the Korean Peninsula and then the Korean people will, will achieve greatness and the prosperity of the South, of course, will be shared in the North and everybody will be better off. But it only comes through war. There is no plan B that anyone ever talks about. There, there is no other option. And I know we could say, well, we would never allow this. And OK, that's the policy now. If North Korea was able to, with conventional munitions, take South Korea quickly enough and if the U.S. did not have South Korea's back... Is there, a, is there a future we could even conjure, we could imagine, where the peninsula is unified under the Kim regime? Probably not, but it's not entirely impossible. And if they think it's possible, that's dangerous enough. All right, welcome back, everyone. I know we've been talking a lot about the uh, storm down in Texas and how it's continuing, plus Antifa out in California and the violence at 
a protest there. But I don't want to just skip over what happened at the White House on Friday. Uh, The news came in late Friday, right after the show. I saw that uh, our friend Dr. Sebastian Gorka um, had decided that it was time to move on to some other pressing opportunities. Uh, Dr. Gorka joins us now. He is former deputy assistant to President Donald Trump. Doctor, great to have you. Thanks for having me. Uh, all right, Dr. Gorka, I mean, what happened? Well, look, uh, it's very simple. Uh, I came into the administration as a politically commissioned officer, a deputy assistant working directly for Steve Bannon, the chief strategist. Uh, we came aboard to make the uh, MAGA vision a reality, especially in the field of national security. Uh, in recent months, uh, other voices have uh, started to be ascendant within the White House. And then the speech, I was on vacation, and I read the, the uh, text of the president's speech in Afghanistan, and I realized uh, that there are uh, other influences, other tendencies, uh, no mention of radical Islam, no mention of radical Islamic terrorism in that speech. So I decided um, there are certain limitations to what I can do effectively inside the White House, those do not exist on the outside. I attended my resignation with General Kelly, the chief of staff, on Friday and uh, gave my letter of resignation. The president reached out to me the day after on Saturday, thanked me for uh, my support, hoped that I will support him on the outside, and I have uh, sent the message back to him that is very much what I will be doing. Dr. Gorka, I'm not a a gossip columnist, and I respect that you have obligations, not just, of course, secrecy obligations, which I know all too well myself, but also just professional and ethical ones to your former uh, employer and those around him. But on the issue of removing radical Islam from a speech, um, can you tell us where that comes from within either the White House or the national security complex? I mean, who who thinks that radical Islam should not be spoken of? Because if they want it removed, from the speech, I don't think that's something that they should also then be unwilling to make the case for removing it from a speech. This shouldn't be something that happens in the shadows. Uh, I agree, uh, but I, I appreciate your discretion. And, and the last thing I'm going to do is to, to add to any of the stories of palace intrigue. Uh, I've been the, the brunt of enough of those stories in the last eight months, and in, in 90% of the cases, they're all bogus anyway. Um, it's it's just tendencies. A lot of it has to do with holdover individuals, uh, people that uh, the bureaucracy inherited. It's very important that everybody understands uh, the January 20th uh, transition was a hostile takeover. Uh, the uh, victory on November the 8th was an insurgent victory. Uh, this is a small band of, of merry insurgents that took over the federal government and there are a lot of people who disagree with the president's vision despite the fact that they pick up their paycheck to work for the executive so uh no names no pack drills but i think uh you understand the enormity of uh moving the direction uh, of the state away from uh, the last eight years of terrorism being the result of you know uh, poverty climate change you name it We're speaking to Dr. Sebastian Gorka, former deputy assistant to President Trump. He just left the White House, resigned on Friday, and he's joining us now. Dr. Gorka, there's been a lot of talk since you mentioned the hostile takeover. There's been a lot of talk 
with this administration about, forget about those that you were working day in and day out with in the White House, but of a deep state element that exists in the federal bureaucracy. Um, How much credibility should people give to those discussions and how much of a concern is it for you now going forward trying to help the president and, and be a part of his message from the outside? Yeah, I, I'm not a huge fan of the phrase deep state. Uh, I think the reality is 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 the permanent state, the permanent bureaucracy. Um, again, it, it was a real eye-opener to me to be in uh, PCC meetings, in National Security Council meetings that lasted for an hour, an hour and a half, and having to be the, the lone voice that at the end would remind everybody that they're there to serve the mission of the president. They're not there to carry on business as usual. The American people decide, they choose a commander-in-chief. As a result, it is beholden upon them to follow the directives of the new commander-in-chief. And in many cases, uh, they think that they they know better. And that's not how Republican democracy works. Uh, And uh, I think that that's our biggest problem. Those people who think they know better than the newly empowered chief of chief executive dr gorka there are a lot of people who listen to this show who have been not just supportive of the president uh, from day one after he was sworn in but long before that and they have seen the vision uh, they have agreed with it and they want to see its implementation but i can tell you based on what i hear both on the show on the air as well as uh, offline when people are sending me messages and emails or off air rather is that there are concerns. What do you say to people right now who are worried that, as you put it, the MAGA agenda is hitting the rocks? Uh, They shouldn't be worried. Uh, The the MAGA agenda isn't just a function of who's inside the White House, who's a political appointee, who's running a a specific policy uh, package. Uh, It's a much, much bigger phenomenon. Steve Bannon, outside the West Wing, is actually far more powerful than he would have been inside the West Wing. So, you know, the president assured me that he will stay on his agenda. Nothing's changing with regards to his commitment. We have to make sure that those patriots on the inside, political appointees and otherwise, and those people on the outside like myself and, and Steve Bannon, do everything in, uh, in our power to make the president's vision a reality. So don't worry. Uh, you, you know better than most, having been inside the belly of the beast, that this is about the long game, Buck. Yeah, it has to be. One has to be patient or else uh, or else despair quickly takes over. Dr. Gorka, we'll let you go. I know you're very busy. you got a lot of people who want to talk to you. But just one last thing. What's next for you? Uh, exciting things. Uh, we're going to create several initiatives that are going to embody what you can call a Jacksonian vision of uh, national security and foreign policy, uh, embodying a, a, a smart center. We're not going to be uh, having to choose between the isolationism of, uh, of the uh, Cato Institute types or the interventionism of the neoconservatives. We are going to embody the MAGA national security agenda with various initiatives on the outside that will make sure the president has all the ammunition he needs to keep this nation safe. Dr. Sebastian Gorka, hoping you'll come back and tell us about them in due time. Thank you so much for your service to the country. Thank you for joining us on the show. I'd be delighted anytime. Thank you so much. God bless. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. 
While this was, while that was making its way through all the news feeds and all of us were sending our thoughts, prayers, and, and, and assistance even because of the world we live in now, you can send money and you can, you can do something to help, uh, as I've been talking to you about here on the show. If you want to help, you can help. Sending a little bit of money helps, and those who are in the region and have been showing up with any kind of uh, watercraft Everything from uh, from fishing boats to ski boats to pontoon boats to kayaks to you name it. And people have been really helping out. But while all that was going on over the weekend, there were these stories about what happened at Berkeley over the weekend. And there was a, there was a, a, a right-wing protest. And this is another one of these times where we're led to believe it's alt-right. And I don't know enough about the group to know much other than that they say they're having a free speech gathering and that they were, from all the reports that I've read, I wasn't there, but I was going through all the feeds and scrolling through different journalists who were on the scene. From everything I've read, there was no violence from the free speech side, but from what I have seen, including videos, and we played a montage for you before of what was going on out there, there were people who showed up as part of this Antifa movement. And once again, these individuals believe that dressing in black from head to toe, carrying weapons and beating people up for saying things that they don't like is opposing fascism instead of, in fact, embodying one of the early traits of fascism, which is suppression of speech under threat of force. Antifa has no grasp of irony, it would seem, or at least no grasp of history. And I'm sure that's true, by the way. Also noticing that more and more reporters are seeing that this Antifa, anti-fascist group is just a rebranded version of the black bloc anarchists of previous protests stretching all the way back to 1999 where the wto was protested and by protested i mean rioted by these black bloc leftist stormtroopers breaking windows attacking cops causing mayhem causing real damage and causing violence this is what they do it's not new and I think it's very important as we discuss all this, they're going to keep pointing to Charlottesville and say, see, this is necessary because of those racist, bigoted jerks in Charlottesville. And they are racist. There, there were and are racist, bigoted jerks. There were, there were racist, bigoted jerks in Charlottesville. Scummy losers. But not everyone who wants to have a free speech protest all across the country is carrying a swastika and yelling Sig Heil and blood and soil and all this other stuff. That's, in fact, not what we're talking about. It's not what happened in Boston. All these anti-fascists showed up, including black bloc anarchists, under this new banner, this rebranding of them as Antifa. And from what I've seen, it wasn't the case in Berkeley either. You have people who were just wearing Trump hats who are being attacked on the street. Last week, I talked to you about some of the assaults that have occurred, including somebody stabbed because he, quote, had a fascist haircut. 
meaning just short on the sides and long on top, which is actually a, a trendy haircut in a lot of parts of the country. Macklemore, Brad Pitt, I've told you, other people have had this haircut. This is not, I'm a fascist, this is just a trendy haircut. Uh, people stabbed, people attacked, people punched, a Trump protester, African-American Trump, pro-Trump protester, punched in the face, blindsided by somebody, just because. It's because he's saying he's pro-Trump. These acts of violence across the country are getting so much less attention, and I, I do want to remind you all of the way things... This is not what about us, and this is historical context. It's important to keep in mind the way all of this was going in the past, the way that this was treated by the media previously, as we look at what's happening now and today. Because the Tea Party, if somebody so much as blew their nose too hard at one of these rallies, uh, we would be hearing about how the Tea Party is out of control and you know there's all kinds of problems with them. And with Antifa, you're seeing violence breaking out. I mean, I, I posted on Twitter, I just couldn't help myself, a photo, a still shot of the video, because there's video out there. And I think we have some of it up on BuckSaxon.com, and if we don't already, we will. Video of these black block anarchists attacking people who have done nothing to them. They are physically assaulting people, and the police are there, and the police are not intervening nearly fast enough that that the Washington Post was publishing stories uh, or publishing editorials. It was it was on the opinion section, but an editorial recently that said why the left gave up on political violence. This is the, the intelligentsia. The American left holds this up as a talking point while Antifa is punching people in the face and while we are still recovering as a nation from the mass assassination of U.S. congressmen by a mainstream Bernie Sanders supporter. Right? Guy was told everything seemed normal about this guy, and then he decided to kill a bunch of people who were Republican conservative members of Congress. And then we have talking heads and writers and journalists going on TV or anywhere that they have a platform saying the left has given up on violence. We are in dangerous times for discourse, as I have been telling you. It's not just that you can't punch people for saying things you don't like, even if they're Nazis. And we're not even talking about Nazis, but also the definition of what's a Nazi is being expanded to include anyone that the left designates a Nazi. It is similar, in a sense, to what you see within the Islamic community called takfir. Takfir is when Muslims can declare that other Muslims are no longer, in fact, Muslims because they are not pure in their beliefs and they are collaborators with infidels, with unbelievers, and therefore can be attacked, can be targeted for murder the same way as non-believers can. It's called the, and this is why some people will refer to jihadists like Al-Qaeda as takfiris. Well, within the left, they aren't taking their own people and pushing them out and saying that they're that although that may it may come to that point down the line but they're taking their fellow Americans and saying see that person that person is sympathetic to or is close to is alt right is somehow connected to Nazis therefore they can be punched therefore they can be attacked and there's a moral obligation to do so to prevent them from speaking Media doesn't get all in a frenzy about this. You'll notice they're not all that upset at all because most of the people you see reporting on Antifa 
agree at some level with the sentiment that Antifa is part of the resistance, as they call themselves, against a dangerous and destructive Trump administration, a Trump administration that is, in fact, so dangerous in the eyes of Antifa that tactics that include violence and destruction of property, as we saw at the inauguration, I should note, hundreds of people arrested in D.C., cars lit on fire. That was all Antifa. Trump hadn't even done anything yet. But Trump is just the excuse. Leftism, as embodied by, or if you want to call it the uh, militant liberalism, uh, progressivism, leftism in this country, as embodied by Antifa, is not about opposition to Trump. That's just the excuse. They existed before Trump even came into office. Black Bloc anarchists were tearing around New York City back in 2011 when I was covering them as part of the Occupy Wall Street protest. I have the photos. I have the videos. They were maniacs then. They're maniacs now. They would attack people they didn't like then. They would attack people they didn't like now. It was uncomfortable being a journalist being near them because I thought, you know, this. they've threatened to attack journalists this weekend, too. They, they, they actually did attack a journalist, but they're threatening to attack any journalists. They bloodied a journalist. There are photos of this. You'd think that fellow journalists would be really upset and outraged about this, but more important for most of them, at least, to be part of the hashtag resistance against Trump. They're too sympathetic to the espoused causes of Antifa to speak out about Antifa. And the whole thing is a lie. I'm here to tell you Antifa is a lie. Doesn't has nothing to do with Trump, really. Trump now is just the latest He's the excuse. But Antifa existed before. These tactics, this mentality existed before. The difference is journalism and the establishment and the Democratic Party are even more sympathetic to Antifa now. They're even more willing to turn a blind eye to black bloc tactics. And campuses have sympathies for the message that speech that the left declares to be violence is in fact violence. So that's the change. This group has always been around. They are not new. They're not a response to Trump. That is a lie. They are just being given more free reign now because of Trump. So keep that in mind as they threaten journalists, attack people, create mobs on the streets, and keep it in mind as you see the media covering them. Because they're not just lying about Antifa's causes, they're lying about what Antifa's doing. Even though got all the food lines and stuff that's still it's more important that they're income equal correct yes you okay and i think they do a very good job should we model ourselves more like a venezuela to become more income equal i think so yeah i think so yeah economically it would be nice because it would be it would be even for all i do think that we should model after and then i do think that we should look at what they're doing i feel like that would be a better plan if we all give a little bit you know um and become a little bit more socialist that's how we do it you know you got to wait in line for stuff. We should all wait in line together. Right. Essentially. We all have less. Mm-hmm. Everybody has more. Uh, you can think of it like that. A lot like the rest of the world, which is a lot more dignified than us. And is it fair to say that economics, our economic model shouldn't be about stats, but more about feelings and personal stuff, right? Is that fair to say? Yeah. Viva la Venezuela. 
It shouldn't be about stats. It should be about feelings. That is our friend Ami Horowitz, who is back with a new video called Viva la Venezuela, which focuses on liberals' love affair with socialism, including in a country in crisis like Venezuela. He went around and uh, interviewed uh, hipsters here in New York City. Uh, That's at least what's described here. I don't know if they're hipsters. I'm taking his word for it. Uh, But who wish America was more like Venezuela the one and only Ami Horowitz, everybody. Ami, great to have you. It's always a pleasure to be back. Thanks, Buck. Uh, so you had people. Now, was that well, this is the way that, you know, if the Huffington Post got a hold of you, Ami, they would say, oh, it's so unfair. He's cherry picking. These were the dumbest things people said. Right. Well, what would you say? So I would say I spoke with 30 people, 30 people in the course of filming, course of the day. Of those 30 people, 21 said we should model our economic system more like venezuela and less like we currently have and by the way you heard in the clip but just to underscore the point it wasn't as if they didn't know what's happening in venezuela because i explained to them what was happening i said there is no they have no ability to get to get basic necessities there's food lines for days there's violence in the streets but they are more income equal because everybody has less to nothing after setting that up 21 out of 30 still said they want to be more like Venezuela. And, and of, by the way, of the nine who didn't say they want to be like Venezuela, they said, I just don't know enough about it. Not a single person I spoke to in, in, the, in the East Village of, of Manhattan said to me, are you insane? Are you crazy? Not one person. This is fascinating because you really have a, a couple of problems colliding here. One, that anyone who fancies himself or herself even vaguely knowledgeable about what's going on in the world, not to understand that, that Venezuela is in just a, a, a crisis, an absolute death spiral as a country, uh, becoming a failed state. That's obviously a part of this. As you, but, but you even, you know, and that would have been my first inclination to say, Avi, just, there's so much ignorance about the world, even from people who think of themselves as worldly, right? That, that's the big, it's, oh, I've got a passport. You know, I went to Aruba last year. Like, I know what's going on in the world. That doesn't count. Uh, by the way, but, it's not that far from Venezuela. It, I, I, th- that's actually a very good point. That was a country that I just thought of for vacation because it sounds nice, but it is very close. Very, It's Southern Caribbean, everyone. Uh, but the point here I'm trying to make is that people think of themselves as very worldly and don't actually know what's going on in the world. But you explain to them what's going on in Venezuela. But when you throw in that magic word, equality, then all of a sudden that becomes the most important thing. Because that, this, this video gets the heart of what the left is about. The left, and it explains a lot. It also explains the love affair the left has with Islam and, and trying to protect Islam from denigration. At the end of the day, their ultimate value is not, uh, it's certainly not a quality of opportunity, because that by definition will have have and have nots. It's not even uh, egalitarian values that we all hold you know, in the West. At the end of the day, the ultimate value of the left is equality, complete and total equality. And, you know, it's funny. There, there's, 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 listen, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I, know you don't, you, I know you know me, and I don't like being controversial, right? So I'm going I'm to say something very controversial here. You know, when you talk about um, the neo-Nazis and all this kind of stuff, and, and if, you want, if you ask me, what is more dangerous to the fabric of our American society, of our American identity? Is it 20,000 disgusting neo-Nazis, or is it the hard left, which makes up millions of people, in our body politic. I will tell you now, I'll tell it clearly and loudly, the greatest threat to our society 
is the hard left because these people, and this is not, and, I, and again, while this is not a majority of young people, it is a significant minority, and they're certainly clustered around the coast. They, are, they do not want the U.S. capitalist system. They want it to be socialist, and ultimately that will lead to communism. But there's no question if you ask young people, a, all studies show it, a plurality of millennials want socialism over uh, capitalism, and that's a real serious problem for our society. Speaking to Ami Horowitz about his new video, Viva La Venezuela, where can people see it, Ami? You can go to AmiHorowitz.com. You can go to my YouTube, Ami Horowitz. You can go to my Twitter, believe it or not, it's Ami Horowitz. Um, you can go to Fox.com. It's all over the place. Ah, I'm noticing a pattern here, Ami Horowitz. Uh, so there we go. Um, <laughs> yeah. By the way, yeah, uh, do, do you? I feel like Antifa has got to be in your sights here for something that you might be tackling, hopefully metaphorically speaking, next. Is that... What are you doing, man? You're ruining my thing. Yeah, listen, Antifa is, I mean, I've tangled those guys before. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I actually, metaphorically, I'm actually a little... Yeah, you remember the Occupy days? I keep telling everybody, Black Block was running around like a bunch of maniacs then. This is not new. No, this is not new. This is just, listen, the, tr- the truth is, it's, it's even older than that. It's funny, I think our society is, is very interesting, how, how cyclical our history is. This, the, the point of time in our society today, when you look at all the, the technological uh, disruption that we see that's really been affecting labor markets across the planet, and, and that's a lot of what we see from both the Antifa and left and also from the Trump movement is all coming, coming from this. The truth is, if you look back into the turn of the century, not this century, last century, at the, the Industrial Revolution and the kind of job displacement it had then, we had the same type of people, the same Antifa people. We had, we had communists. We had anarchists. We had, we had anti-technology people back then. And, and those people were all running loose, and it led to a very dark point in our history. And I have to tell you, I'm seeing a lot of that same echo today as we did over 100 years ago. And I hate to say it, but I think we're heading toward a very dark place if we don't get a handle on this thing now. Ami Horowitz, everybody. Check out his latest video. It is called Viva la Venezuela. And you can go to uh, AmiHorowitz.com to see more. Ami, uh, great to have you all, man. Stay safe and uh, come back with your next project, whatever it may be. Always a pleasure, buddy. So, uh, team, there you have it. You know, this is somebody who also has seen what it's like to deal with uh, the black bloc in the past. and But that, that he's walking around and asking people about Venezuela and that they're so willing to excuse almost anything that's going on in that country as long as the buzzword equality or a more e- a more equal economy, uh, as that phrase is trotted out, that tells you so much about what's going on right now with this movement uh, of the American left and what kids are learning in school and what people, adults, college-age people, what they're not learning. I mean, they don't know what socialism is. They don't even understand the history. They don't understand the ideology. They just know equality, equality, equality. And that, my friends, can be dangerous. Team Buck is back with you now. And I saw this study, and, you know, there are these medical studies that come out, and you automatically latch on to them because they uh, reinforce some notion you have of yourself or of other people. You know, there's medical studies that say everything, right? Medical studies tell you milk is good for you, tells you milk is bad for you. Tells you that, you know, secondhand smoke will kill you. Secondhand smoke is actually not that big a deal. I mean, there's all these different studies, and uh, some of them get pretty uh, out there in terms of what they're looking at. But this one comes courtesy of the Daily Mail, and it talks about a University of Rochester study, which says that uh, that swearing 
well, actually a few things are linked to intelligence. Swearing, eating spicy breakfasts, and lounging around the house naked. Now, I will tell you that that last one in particular surprised me, but two out of three ain't bad. I am somebody who enjoys in my private personal life or just when I'm not on air as a, as a broadcast professional, salty language. I think salty language is necessary. I'm, I don't use it in front of children. I don't use it in business settings or in front of people whom I am engaged in, in work with. But in terms of my private or social life, occasionally you got you to gotta drop some verbal bombs here and there. You, if you want your point to come across to its fullest, Profanity has a place in language. That's all I'm saying. According to this study, I know a lot of you are like, blank, yeah, buck. Uh, but uh, according to this study, uh, profanity usage is linked to a level of intelligence. Uh, eating a spicy breakfast, I will say that that one uh, caught me somewhat by surprise. But I'm happy to say that among my favorite, uh, among my favorite breakfast is something that I took from a little cafe up near me, they call it the uh, upstate rather, which I'll talk to you more about upstate in a second. They call it the spicy moo, like moo cow, and it's scrambled eggs on a, uh, I believe they do it on an English muffin with hot sauce. And I have now taken this and elevated it to a breakfast, a culinary art form of its own. But hot sauce on eggs in the morning is. Amazing. And apparently, according to this study from the University of Rochester, it means you're smart. So that's right. Got to let that hot sauce do the talking for you sometimes. It's a spicy. And then the last thing, lounging around naked. Now, to be fair, I live in New York City. If I were to spend time walking around sans clothing, uh, it would be putting on a show for the neighbors that they don't want to see. So uh, I'm I'm not somebody who ever spends any time walking around the house. I, I have many pairs of oversized uh, champion shorts. That that's really my go-to, or sweatpants. But I wear shorts or sweatpants around the house all the time. I'm not somebody who goes uh, au, au naturel in in the buff. I think it's also said. But that if you are now somebody listening to this show and you enjoy. Cursing while you douse your eggs in hot sauce, totally naked on your couch while you watch, you know, Good Morning America or whatever it is you watch, Fox and Friends, whatever show that, you know, you prefer in the morning. This study out of Rochester, apparently a real scientific study, says that that is, in fact, linked with higher levels of intelligence. So if you're naked eating spicy stuff and swearing up a storm, you're smarty pants. Who knew, right? There you go. Sometimes you read some fun stuff here. Also, extroverts were more likely to drive their cars faster and gamble, but that's not a surprise to anybody. Buck Sexton here with you now, team. I spent some time with family over the weekend, which was always great. I was at my parents' place in upstate New York, which for real upstate New Yorkers, they would just say that I was at essentially a far suburb of New York City, because two hours from New York is not really upstate, uh, they would think that it has to be close to the border with Canada. You know, once you get up there by the St. Lawrence River, and that's that's upstate. But my parents' place has uh, what all of you are, I'm sure, listening to, or at least most of you are very familiar with, uh, grass and trees, uh, places where animals live uh, that do not involve either uh, pigeons, rats, or squirrels, uh, which is pretty much what you get here in New York City. 
So, oh, we have upstate uh, parents have, it's in the Hudson Valley is their place, and they have uh, all kinds of stuff out there, coyotes, uh, black bears. My mom's seen black bears. I've seen the coyotes, foxes all over the place, wild turkeys everywhere, uh, incredible uh, birds. My mom saw a bald eagle land in our backfield last week and feed on some carrion. Eagle, symbol of freedom, eating dead things. Uh, and there was, uh, yeah, and there's also a lot of bluebirds because my dad has made it a special point to put up bluebird houses and to uh, do everything in his power to make sure there's nice places for bluebirds to live, black-capped chickadees, uh, swallows, goldfinches, amazing, amazing songbirds you have up in the Hudson Valley area, and crows, which for those of you who don't know, a group of crows is called a murder of crows, and they are uh, fascinating animals with much greater uh, capabilities to process information and share information amongst each other than I think most people would realize. Uh, crows have facial recognition. They can tell different people. Uh, they've done studies about this. I'm, I know it sounds crazy, but crows are very intelligent. Uh, and they also can, I've seen videos of this, they can gang up in a murder or a murder of crows, a pack, and uh, take on large raptors and, and push them out of their territory. So anyway, I was up there for the weekend and decided that I would watch the Mayweather-McGregor fight, which, as you know, Mayweather pretty handily won, although it went 10 out of 12 rounds. And I was just reminded watching this because it was billed as, you know, MMA, multidisciplinary martial artist versus uh, true uh, boxing superstar undefeated with Mayweather. Uh, and I was thinking about how growing up, martial arts was much more a part of my youth than I think a lot of people uh, would ever expect. There was a period really in the, in the 80s and into the 90s when martial arts were really a fad in this country. And, and I know that it's, it's still ongoing. There's a lot of martial arts, but uh, it, it's changed now. People, people have a better understanding of what a real, uh, of, of what a, a real skill set is when it comes to both defending yourself and the sports uh, that involve combatives uh, instead of some of the stuff that we all used to see. I mean, I remember watching movies and it became a thing for a while that you would have these movies with different styles of martial art as really the, the showcase for what the movie was all about. And you, have, you had uh, Steven Seagal, who made Aikido, uh, Japanese martial art, a household name, uh, along with Steven Seagal. Uh, you had a guy named uh, Jeff Speakman in a movie that I'm sure a couple of you have seen called The Perfect Weapon, where he popularized Kenpo, which is a style of karate. There was The Best of the Best, which was a pretty cheesy but watchable movie about Taekwondo and Taekwondo competing at the national level. And, of course, there were fights that were not on the uh, not, not in the sports side of Taekwondo, too, because it's a movie. Uh, and then you have Chuck Norris with his popularization of karate and martial arts and ninjutsu in some of his movies. There was uh, Van Damme, who was a well-known martial artist. Best, best movie was Bloodsport by far. But there was also Kickboxer, which is about his studying in Thailand under Muay Thai uh, kickboxing, Muay Thai kickboxing uh, master. 
And this is one of the one of the myths of the 80s and 90s was that you could study usually with someone from the Far East, uh, an older gentleman who spent a lot of time in contemplation and meditation. But when called upon an action could take on like five big, strong thugs all at once. Uh, not not really the case in real life. I, I hate to break it to everyone. Um, unfortunately, doing lots of time of uh, introspection and working on your breathing is great for stress relief, but will not, in fact, win a bar fight for you. Uh, but Van Damme was uh, well known for a, really a style of karate. He studied ballet, for those who didn't know. And there is the French martial art of savat, which incorporates Western boxing and the kicks from ballet to form a kind of French kickboxing. It's really like, it's like a, yeah, it's a French kickboxing is what it is, um, which is pretty effective, I'm, I'm told, by those who have studied it as a form of self-defense. But when you're looking at what is effective versus what was, what is effective today, what we see as effective versus what we were told uh, from movies in the, particularly the 80s and 90s when I was growing up, there's quite a gulf. Uh, we've gone from thinking that, or, or at least seeing, whether you believe this or not, that fly kicks were actually a really great way to go on the street to knowing that you pretty much never want to throw a fly kick, especially because if nothing else, not only are you going to miss by a mile and probably make yourself really vulnerable, you might just rip a hamstring. So fly kicks are no good, uh, despite what we've seen in all the movies, unless you're a professional martial, art, martial artist who's stretching for an hour a day and really knows what he's doing. Uh, but this is one of the changes that's occurred. Oh, the, the most interesting martial art, by the way, that I ever saw was capoeira, which I had a fascination with in about the eighth grade or right when I was starting high school. It was a Brazilian martial art that was developed by uh, African slaves bought to, brought to uh, Brazil, uh, and they would they would train in capoeira because they weren't allowed to study any, for obvious reasons, any form of self-defense. And that was then a, a way of learning how to fight. And, and there were some uh, uprisings. And, and later on, it became associated with uh, street thugs, actually, who would carry a straight razor between their toes. And so it was outlawed in Brazil for a while. And then it came back in the 1960s, 1970s. And believe, it is believed that it, it made its way in some form to the United States and was the basis for breakdancing. At least that's the, that's the urban legend, whether you believe it or not. Uh, but back to the different martial arts. So I would see all these movies and you would be told that if you trained enough, you know, and you, you learned the ways of the of the ancients, uh, you'd be able to take on eight guys at once. Well, unfortunately, reality intrudes into this and strength and speed and endurance have a whole lot more to do with who's going to win a fight, uh, as well as the, the willingness to act. I mean, throwing the first punch, unfortunately, on the street is often an indicator of who's going to come out on top, so to speak. Uh, so the willingness to use force or to go to force first, but also, uh, you know, th this is, it's just been a change in perception over time that I've had. And I'm somebody who dabbled a little bit here and there, mostly, you know, cause I wanted to be cool. Like my older brother, I'm somebody who dabbled in a bit of martial arts. He studied Wing Chun for years. Wing Chun is essentially Kung Fu, and it is the basis system that Bruce Lee learned before he developed Jeet Kune Do. Uh, so my older brother has been studying Wing Chun for years. But I, I wanted to you know, learn a little bit of this here and there. So I dabbled. I mean, I'm, and I mean dabbled uh, in 
a bit of Taekwondo, some boxing growing up, which was good, actually. I did get in the ring with some people, and it's important to learn that you don't want to get punched in the face uh, and to learn how to avoid that and, if need be, how to punch back. It's a good thing for kids to learn, I think. Uh, wrestling as well did a fair... I was always good at wrestling, to be honest with you. I was, uh, I think, because of having two brothers maybe was a big part of that, but I just had a natural instinct for wrestling, which came in handy in a, in a couple of scraps later on in life because uh, it's very similar to jujitsu, which is grappling. I mean, if you have a basis of wrestling, there's a lot that transfers over into jujitsu and being able to grapple, especially in a fight where it's diff- much more difficult to connect with strikes than people who've never been in a fight think it is, uh, being able to grapple and uh, establish dominance on the ground is very important for reasons of uh, self-preservation and self-defense. Uh, but I dabbled in all that. I did a little bit of uh, Krav Maga as I got older, and then even eventually, as I had exposure to some folks from the uh, special operations community, had some edge weapons training, which is also eye-opening because there's a bit of anatomy that you come to learn when you're really uh, studying edged weapons, and you realize you never want to be in a fight with somebody who has a knife, and you never want to have to use a knife on anybody else. It is uh, very clinical. Uh, so I have been somebody who grew up watching all these martial arts movies and have just seen the transformation. And now there's such a greater public understanding and awareness of what's realistic and what's not. And this idea that you're just going to be a, a karate master and beat up 10 guys. Sure. In, in movies like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, that's very stylized. And I can accept that. And and more historical pieces about samurais and such. I, I can get I can understand that. But. You know, this the movies were for a while. Hey, you know, I'm going to take some college kid from like Pasadena, California, and he's going to hang out with some guy from Asia who's going to train him to be a ninja who can beat up a lot of people. That, that's just not how it works in uh, in real life. And and really from a self-defense perspective, uh, well, MMA is a sport, but it's also those guys can defend themselves incredibly well and are really, you know, are, are weaponized uh, hands, feet and knees. Uh, so MMA is very effective. Boxing, just learning how to throw and take a punch uh, is a very effective means of learning a bit of self-defense. Uh, Krav Maga I thought was pretty good, but I have to say that uh, Taekwondo, I even did some Tai Chi that was uh, billed initially as self-defense. And let me tell you, uh, that was not going to defend me from squat. So it, there's a huge variation. In Capoeira, I learned, I took some classes I learned to uh, stand on my head and for a while walk on my hands, but uh, I'm not about to do a backflip into a cartwheel, into a spin kick anytime soon. That much I can promise you. So some of these things are much more effective than others. And with Mayweather and McGregor, what you saw was that you can have two combatants uh, who are fighters, but the difference in the sport is that in boxing, obviously there's a limitation on what you can use, can't use knees, can't use kicks and can't tackle somebody to the ground. It's a different skill set. And so even somebody as uh, who does as much cross training as McGregor was at such a disadvantage against Mayweather because in that realm, literally in that arena, um, that's that's what Mayweather's been doing his whole life. And I think it would have been a very different situation if you had those two guys with lightweight gloves or no gloves and just, you know, fight and whoever gets knocked out or submits first is, you know, that's how the fight ends. Um, but that's not what had happened. It was a professional boxing match. There was a lot of clinching, a lot of uh, point for point, and 
it's people call it the sweet science and watching it. I kind of got an understanding as somebody who doesn't watch much boxing as to why that is the case. But uh, my my sense of martial arts has transformed dramatically. uh, I can tell you that. And I would much rather have, uh, you know, the the bottom line is if you're going to be the bar fight, you want Tim Kennedy with you. You don't want Mr. Miyagi. <laughs> okay, that's that's all I'm going to say. That's that's really what you, what I've learned from uh, from life and seeing how this actually plays out. Um, all right, team. As always, great to have you here on the show. Thank you so much for uh, for hanging out. Please do download the podcast uh, Buck Saxon with America Now is where we're going to go for that. Uh, also, you can listen anywhere in the country on the iHeart app, and so you can tell folks if you want to pass along the show to them just say hey download the iheart app and you can listen anywhere you've got cell service or wi-fi uh, and it's you know great connection you can listen to the whole show that way or you can listen on playback on itunes if you want uh, but we do run the show for everyone who's listening by the way we run the show on a loop so if someone misses the show but they download the iheart app and go to buck Saxon with america now they'll just pick it up and they'll catch the show wherever it is so it keeps playing so they can listen whenever they want just tell them to check it out uh, bucksaxon.com as well for gear Until tomorrow, my friends, as always, shields high.